Good afternoon and welcome to the Stand Fight Win podcast hosted by Albertson and Davidson. I'm Keith Davidson. I'm Stuart Albertson. We want to thank you for joining us this afternoon. You can find our Stand Fight Win podcast live on video on Facebook and YouTube. You can also find it recorded after we're done with the live broadcast on Facebook and YouTube. And you can also find an audio only version of our podcast on Podbean or iTunes if you look for the Stand Fight Win podcast. How you doing today, Stuart? I'm doing good. We've got a lot of places you can go to. Yeah, yeah. It'd be, it'd be really impressive if you went and watched every single one. It'd be stunning because the you know if you listen to it once, it's it's fun and exciting, but five times even better. Gets every gets even better every time you look at it. All right, what do we have I'll on store to today? All right, so today the topic for today's broadcast is attorney malpractice. Attorneys doing either intentionally bad things. Negligent things, bonehead things, who knows? So, and the case we're going to go over in our breaking news segment, so let's start with breaking news, is actually not maybe the most breaking of news. This was decided a while back. This is a case that comes to us uh, from a while ago, but it is a California Supreme Court case, which California Supreme Court does not weigh in on trust and will cases. Not that often. All that often. So this is Lucas v. Ham, and I do have a site for it here somewhere. Here it is. It's, oh, do you have it? It's 56 Cal 2nd, 583. Yeah, and this case is from uh, 1961. So breaking news. You were century. in junior high then, right? Yeah, no. Oh. I wasn't born yet, but thank you for thinking I was. Uh, all right, so Lucas v. Ham is an important case when it comes to attorney malpractice because if an attorney drafts a trust or will and they do it wrong, they make a mistake, can the trust or will beneficiary sue them for that well and i think that was the issue in lucas versus ham because i and let me just set this up from my standpoint here you have a lawyer that's never met a beneficiary of a trust right never talked to a beneficiary of the trust in most cases does this beneficiary who the decedent wanted assets to go to in their trust and the lawyer messes up in the drafting process does this beneficiary who has no contract with the lawyer has never been engaged with the lawyer as the uh, for, for any legal purposes, does this beneficiary have a right to sue for legal malpractice the estate planning attorney? And it's the contract part that's the real, that's the legal part. So from our legal perspective, we call that privity of contract. And so the beneficiary, the pr- people I'm who I'm sorry, what was that again? Privity of contract. I, I missed that day in law school, no, apparently. Privity okay. of contract. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's Well, you know. Does that mean being locked at the hip? I passed the bar on the first try. Okay. All right. Not everybody did. <laughs> the, um, yeah. So if the, the client and the estate planning attorney, they had a contract. They had an agreement. And the agreement uh, required that the attorney talk to the client, see what their intentions are, what their trust of will, and then they draft something to put those intentions into force. That's right. right. But the beneficiary and the attorney did not have an agreement, did not have a contract. The attorney never worked for the beneficiary. Uh, And so prior to Lucas v. Ham, the courts in California said, well, a beneficiary cannot sue an attorney for drafting a trust or will improperly because there was no agreement between the beneficiary and the attorney, no purview of contract. And who was the only person who could sue theoretically at that time? The the client who now was deceased. And it makes it... Makes it tough to file a lawsuit when you're deceased. All right. It's decidedly harder All right. after your pass. So under Lucas v. Ham, the attorney drafted a, a will. Uh, the plaintiffs in that case were supposed to get 15% of the estate. Uh, they lost out on $75,000 because the attorney drafted it improperly. 
violated the rules against perpetuities, which is another arcane issue that uh, you only see on law exams. I actually missed that in law school as well. Yeah, well, it's because you went to law school in Louisiana. That's I'm true. Not sure they had the rules. We don't. Right. We don't, right? Well, in California we do, but nobody understands it. And so uh, the attorney drafted it wrong, and these people lost out on their 15%, which was to the tune of $75,000, which was a lot more money in 1961 than it is today. But they sued the attorney. And the lower court said, no, you can't sue the attorney, even though the attorney made a mistake, even though they should have drafted this better. Because there's no privity of contract. Because there's no privity of contract. Between the beneficiary and the drafting attorney. Right. All so right. it goes up to the California Supreme Court, and the California Supreme Court reverses and says, no, actually, we are going to allow the beneficiaries to sue the attorney because they are what we call intended beneficiaries, meaning that when the client contracted with the attorney to draft the trust or will, he did it with the intent of benefiting, benefiting the people who are named in the trust or will. Right. And so it was very clear that those people were supposed to benefit from this contract with the lawyer to draft this trust or will properly. And as intended beneficiaries, the beneficiaries under the trust or will who got, who lost out on their inheritance could sue the drafting attorney. Whole new body of law opened up. Yeah, and it was an important body of law. Now that doesn't mean that the beneficiaries can sue in every case. There does have to be a clear connection of intended beneficiaries, that somebody was intended to benefit from this. But trusts or wills, I think, are the one area of the law where intended beneficiaries are, are the most obvious, right? I would think so, yes. Because that's exactly what it is. Now, the interesting thing about Lucas v. Ham is even though the Supreme Court found that there was a, a right to sue, in this particular case, the attorney was not held liable because the will violated the rule against perpetuities and the rule against perpetuities is such a, a confusing area of the law even for lawyers that they said well the, the lawyer we're not going to hold the lawyer liable for this mistake because lawyers aren't liable for every mistake that is made right right they're only liable for mistakes where somebody in that community a similar lawyer wouldn't have made a reasonably would not have made that same mistake that's right so this Lucas v. Ham then opens up the world of malpractice actions. And so does that now mean that every beneficiary who is disinherited can sue a drafting attorney? No. You have to have facts that support the doctrine outlined in Lucas v. Ham that you are an intended beneficiary. The decedent intended this to happen. And the, but for the attorney's mess up or mistake, that you would have received a gift. And now you're not receiving the gift because the lawyer just plain screwed up. And so now you have a cause of action against a lawyer for legal malpractice. And let me point out that just because you have a claim for legal malpractice doesn't mean you're going to win. Uh, first of all, insurance companies that defend the lawyer, the estate planning lawyer being sued for malpractice, they they contest these type of lawsuits very strongly. Sure. Uh, and they make most of them go to trial. Right. Um, unless the, the facts are so dead to rights that everyone will agree that, that the lawyer really did truly mess up. Secondly, legal malpractice, that's not a new doctrine. We've been, we've been, you've been able to sue lawyers since lawyers were, were providing services to people. It's just in this context you have an intended beneficiary. But if we just look at the plain vanilla uh, trust, uh, uh, legal malpractice case, they're very difficult to win. Even when you have good facts, they're a difficult 
case to win. And why are they a difficult case to win? So let, let me give you a, a hypothetical. Okay. Let's, let's test a couple of hypotheticals. Maybe that will prove the point. But All right. let's say I, you know, I'm supposed to inherit from uh, my mother. And let's say she goes to an attorney and she leaves everything to my sister. But I think my mom lacks capacity and didn't know what she was doing at the time that she signed this trust that leaves everything to my sister. Right. Can I sue the attorney for malpractice? Because he did a new trust that didn't meet my mom's intent. Well, you're not going to win that lawsuit. You certainly could be a fool and, and file it. But no, you would have no legal standing or legal basis, let me put it that way, to file a lawsuit against that lawyer. Why not? He drafted something that didn't meet her intent. Well, because the lawyer there is not a doctor, the lawyer there is not required to determine 100% for themselves that your mother has capacity or not. What that lawyer does is they do their best to establish a relationship with your mom, and your mom has wishes. If you think that somehow or another somebody has exercised undue influence over your mother or she does lack capacity, that's your burden to prove that in the form of a trust contest. But you're not going to be able to sue a lawyer for legal malpractice for doing your mother's estate planning, which is their duty. They have a duty to do what they think your mother wants to be done with her estate plan. And again, they're not medical doctors. They're not psychiatrists. They're not neurologists. They're doing the best they can, and they owe fiduciary obligations to your, to your mom when they're doing her estate planning for her. Okay, so that's not going to be such a good case. So what is a good case for attorney malpractice in this area? Well, the, the best one we've ever had come in our office, and it settled for policy limits after one deposition, was where the original trust required both settlers, both trust creators, the mom and the dad, to sign any subsequent amendments. And for some reason, a lawyer drafted an amendment that gave a lot of money to our client and only had one of the trust creators... I think it was the mom sign the trust amendment. It's not a valid amendment at that point, and uh, that that point. And so, we have an intended beneficiary, our client, who's supposed to get a lot of money based on this amendment. But because the amendment lacks the required formalities of two signatures, then legal malpractice has taken place. Our client's damaged, and so that you have malpractice coverage to make up for that damage. So in that case, the lack of one signature was enough to make the amendment invalid. Correct. Which there's no way to get around that. I mean, it was it, clearly you needed two signatures. You had one under the trust document that's not an amendment. We're never going to win that. Like, you could go and try to challenge that and uphold the amendment. The amendment's going to fall because there's only one signature, right? Correct. So then you sue the attorney because what could the attorney have done to correct that mistake? You can't because we have deceit people that have already passed away, so you can't get another signature. No, no, but I mean when they drafted the amendment. Oh, well, they could have read the amendment uh, requirements in the original trust, which says that it's, there's two signatures required for all amendments, and they could have had both the husband and the wife sign the amendment. And the, ironically, in the case that I was just speaking about, the husband and the wife were actually in that lawyer's office when she drafted up the amendment and had just the wife sign it. So that was just curious to me. Why, why not just go ahead? Even if you only were required to get one signature, if there's people in the room and they're married, get their <laughs> signature, signed. right? Well, and that's the interesting point of that case is that all you had to do, all the attorney had to do when they drafted the amendment is have one more signature of the husband. That's right. So then the question becomes, is that something that a reasonable attorney would have done in doing an amendment? Yes. Well, yeah, it's a clear yes. No Because brainer. you would have read the trust. You would have seen, oh, it takes two signatures. They're both here. Have them both signed. So I guess what you're getting at is that that's a very clear-cut case of liability when somebody made a mistake, it was a mistake that shouldn't have been made, very easy to fix, 
no reasonable attorney would have done that. Boom, they're liable. That's right. But how many cases fall along those lines? Those are rare cases where it's so dead to rights. Uh, but even in that case, the insurance company uh, hired lawyers and made us take depositions. And it was kind of sad because we had to put the, the lawyer in the hot seat and we had to have her read the provision in the original trust and ask her if she understood it. Well, of course she understood it. And do you see where it says two signatures? Yes. And then you put the, her amendment in front of her that she drafted and ask her, is this the amendment you drafted? Yes. How many signature lines do you have? I mean, it's, it's just, it was sad, actually. I didn't enjoy that deposition. Right. After that deposition, the, we made a policy limits demand. And there's some bad faith concepts that we don't need to get lost in today. Ultimately, the insurance company thought we better settle this for policy limits or within policy limits so that we don't get a bad faith cause of action against us in the future. Right. Okay. So, I mean, not all of the cases are going to be that clear cut. And so on my example where I said, well, the attorney drafted something that I don't think they should have drafted, that in and of itself isn't going to mean a whole lot. Well, let me give you an example. And you may have this set up for another segment, but I'm going to ruin it for you. So we'll see how well you tap dance. But let's say that uh, uh, my mom comes into a, a lawyer and, and hires the lawyer to draft a will that leaves everything to me and cuts out my brother and sister, which she should be doing. I mean, I think that's, a, that's the right result. Um, so let's say that uh, the lawyer diligently drafts up the will and has everything ready for my mom to sign and he places it on the corner of his desk and he sees it every day when he comes in from wherever he comes to come to work every day and he sees that will sitting there. He fails to call my mom, chooses not to call her for whatever reason for like three months. So for three months, he's come to his office every day and saw that will sitting there ready to be signed, hasn't called my mom, my mom passes away. Am I gonna be successful or am I more than likely gonna be successful in a legal malpractice case against that lawyer? Probably not. I mean, wow, why not? I mean, shouldn't he have had a duty to call my mom? He may, in fact, have a duty to call your mom. But the problem is, is that there's a later case that came after Lucas v. Ham, And I, I should have brought that case with me today, and I didn't. So I'm not great at tap dancing at the moment, I guess. But And I can't remember the name of the case off the top of my head either. But I'll tell you this. There's case law out there that says if an attorney drafts something up and they just don't get back to the client, the client doesn't sign it, the court is not going to hold that attorney liable. And the reason being is that it's too speculative. We don't know. If, if that document had been put in front of your mother, we don't know with any certainty if she actually would have signed it. Because there are t plenty of times when clients say, I want you to give everything to Stuart and disinherit my other two kids. But then when it comes time to actually sign it, there could be a change of heart, a change of mind. They may decide they don't want to do it or they want to change something else. You just don't know without a signature. It's too speculative. That's right. And, and I'll, I would even say one, one thing. If I was going to disinherit two of my children and give everything to one of my children, it wouldn't be something that would just slip my mind. Right. If I had a lawyer draft something up, then I'm going to get back to the lawyer and say, hey, where right. is that? Is that drafted up? Is that ready for me to sign? Yeah, the attorney has, I mean, the client has some duty, I think, or some obligation to call the attorney and say, hey, where's that thing? I want to sign it. Now, I will say that that's a very, it, 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 that doesn't extend to everything. So there certainly could be cases where an attorney does something intentional, intentionally trying to keep the client from, from putting their intent into action by signing. That would be a whole different case. That, that is. That's a whole different case. But, and I will tell you, this lawyer that did what I just suggested, it's bad practice. Oh, yeah. If you saw Will sitting there on the corner of your desk, you should be emailing or texting or sending smoke signals or whatever you have to to your client to determine, I've got this drafted. Are you signing it or not? 
That's true, although I've seen plenty of times where somebody comes in to get an amendment, it, the amendment's drafted up in, say, a week's time, and the client dies, you know, a couple days later. I right. Mean, that happens, unfortunately, and, and, you know, attorneys are not guarantors of these intents. That's so right. the document has to be put in front of the client. The client has to sign it uh, before the attorney is going to be liable in most cases, unless there's an intentional uh, aspect to it where the attorney intentionally is trying to thwart the client's intent. Right. And then once the client signs it, then the question is, was it drafted properly? And that's when you get into potential malpractice by the beneficiaries being able to sue the attorneys that's potentially. Right. So, that's right. So that's a little background and basic information about malpractice on trust and will. So cases. you want to be an intended beneficiary. If you're an intended beneficiary yep. and the drafted attorney messes up, you likely have a valid cause of action. Whether you're going to win that or not, is another question, but you have a valid cause of action against a lawyer. And it's something you should at least look into, right? So you, the statute of limitations for suing attorneys is very short. It's one year. It's funny because lawyers drafted those statutes. Yeah. And they make it the sh- <laughs> one of the shorter statutes. Personal injury is two years. <laughs> That's right. Suing an attorney is one. That's right. Guess who drafted that statute? Yes. Attorneys. Yes. You can, you can take two years to sue doctors, but a year to sue uh, attorneys. That's right. Yeah. Well, so it goes. All right, let's move on to our next segment, and we're going to move on to our practice pointers. And Stuart, if you could kind of lead us out on some ideas you've had as practice pointers in the area of uh, attorney malpractice. Yeah, so we have a case right now where uh, we have a client that was an intended beneficiary, much like we just discussed, where her father had taken her in and out of his trust on multiple occasions. But ultimately, while he still had capacity, and no one's arguing that, he sent a letter to his then uh, long-standing estate planning attorney and said, you were to immediately to reinstate my daughter and put her back in the trust like she was before, same percentages and everything. And he signs his name and he sends it off to the lawyer. And the lawyer never responds to him. Lawyer doesn't do anything. Lawyer doesn't get in contact with him. And then over the next several years, uh, the individual's capacity, it starts to decline. At some point in 2014, uh, again, the lawyer, the drafting attorney here had a long time, it was a long time client, the the decedent here who ultimately passed away. Uh, The decedent's, one of the daughters comes in to the drafting attorney and says, oh, dad has lost all of his capacity. So what what am I supposed to do? Mm. So the lawyer, without calling his client to talk to his client, just goes ahead and drafts up some capacity letters, gives them to the daughter and says, you need to go and take these to two of your dad's doctors and get them to sign off on, which is not particularly difficult to do. And when you bring those back, then you'll engage with me as your attorney for the trust administration. And uh, there was uh, some facts that came out about a secret meeting. It was, it was called a secret meeting several times by the daughter, the estate planning attorney, and, and another person who was named as a co-trustee. And it was kind of the idea to keep this secret from the decedent who hadn't passed away yet. And the lawyer's got several problems here that I've already identified. The first problem he has is he didn't follow his client's direction to put his daughter back into the trust. So that was done in a letter? Yes, from several years prior. So, I mean, that's pretty solid evidence that somebody wanted something. That's right. And so there's an argument that 
you and I've come up with, and we think it's a, it's a rational argument, and that is that the letter itself is an amendment. It doesn't need anything more than that, because that shows the intent of what this individual wanted. And it's a writing, and it's signed. And most trusts say you need to have something signed and in, you know, in writing and signed by the set lawyer. And delivered to the trustee. And, and he, he was, was trustee at the time. He was trustee, so, yeah. Yeah, it's funny how those writings actually can be amendments in and of themselves. Right. But as a lawyer, at a minimum, if we got that letter and we didn't want to make the amendment, we would yeah. have a duty to our long-term client to let them know, hey, we can't do this for X, Y, and Z, or yes, we're going to do this, and I'll have it sitting in my office, come in and sign it. Now you go back to that other case you just talked about where if he had drafted up the amendment and let it sit there in the office, well, maybe now without the letter, that wouldn't be a valid amendment. But because we have the letter, we think we have a valid amendment. So that's the first issue that I see with the lawyer. The second issue is the duty of loyalty that the lawyer has to their client. And here the lawyer represents decedent, who apparently, according to one of his daughters, has, is lacking in some capacity or having a downgrade to his mental functioning. But the lawyer doesn't take any time to even contact his client, his long-term, long-standing client, to even try to have a phone conversation with him or to go visit him or have the client come in to the office. And why does that bother us? Well, the issue comes down to you cannot you cannot take actions that are adverse to your client's interests. And so think about that. I mean, do you want to control your own finances? Do you want to make your own financial decisions Absolutely. right now in your life? Yes. Or do you want somebody else doing that for you? Me. So if I'm your lawyer, I have no right to take that away from you without first talking to you. Do you want that? Now, you might say to me, yeah, I want somebody else to manage my finances. That's your choice. You have the right to make that decision. But you could also say to me, no, I don't want that. I don't want somebody else controlling my finances. Now, I might think you're crazy, and I do, in fact, think you're crazy. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't control your own finances. And so if you tell me, no, I... I want to control my own finances. I think as your lawyer, I have to stop right there. Right. And I have to say, well, there's nothing else I can do right. because I have a duty to you. That doesn't mean, though, that the daughter couldn't go get a lawyer and that lawyer could then find. attempt to find some incapacity. The interesting thing about this case and the facts we just learned about in a recent deposition is that the lawyer here, the drafting lawyer here, when he had this so-called secret meeting, one of the co-trustees uh, went back and told the decedent about it, and the decedent was furious. So that leads me to believe he, do, he was not lacking totally in capacity. Right. He was furious about two things. Number one, he learned that his daughter hadn't been placed in the trust like he had directed in 2012, according to what his directions were to the lawyer, and he learned that the lawyer was trying to take away his right to make financial decisions and so forth, right? And that's a, a lawyer's not a lawyer's supposed to be a, a a lifeboat for you, a life preserver to keep you afloat at times when you're going through a hard time. Or it's supposed to be your advocate, not yeah. to be helping drown you, you right. know. So, <laughs> right. um, so the, the right. so that he was so upset about that, he directed this other co-trustee to go find me another lawyer so that I can get number one, my daughter reinstated like I've always wanted for the last two years. And also, I don't want to be conserved. I don't want to have my rights taken away from me as the trustee of my trust. Well, it's funny because just the fact that he wanted another lawyer probably shows just how capacitated he was because that's exactly what any reasonable person would do is that right. if my lawyer is trying to work against me and take away my rights to manage right. my own finances, right. I'm going to think to myself, I need to find another lawyer right? because this person's gone off the rails. That's right. The other problem with the capacity, and we see this a lot where they people come in with these capacity letters from the doctor. 
that doesn't mean that a doctor has done a mental exam or a mini mental or any of the things that you would expect to get a proper incapacity diagnosis. It's, it's usually just a treating physician. They're very busy. They don't mean any ill will by it, but the daughter comes in and says, oh, dad needs help with his, uh, you know, paying his bills. Can you sign this letter? And the doctor obliges because he just being nice. He's not trying to cause it any problems. looks like everybody's well-meaning there. Yeah, and so they sign the letter and out it goes, and then you have these letters saying, oh, there's two letters from dad's doctor saying he lacks capacity. That doesn't mean he actually lacks capacity. He may or may not. Right. But those letters are quite easy to get. And, and again, I'm not saying anything bad about doctors. I think doctors are, are doing the best they can, and they're trying to help their patients. But, but that doesn't, from a legal perspective, that doesn't mean that the man went through an actual uh, neurolo neurological Neurologic exam. exam to determine whether they had capacity or not. Which I was just going to say is a completely different set of facts. And we have seen from time to time where somebody has gone to a neurologist, right. and the neurologist takes, you know, it's an hour, hour and a half interview with this yeah. person. And yeah. they go through everything, and they, they give a big, long report about what this person's capacity is. And, and there's varying degrees of capacity for different types of mental functioning. And they go through each one of those, and they describe it in detail. It's not a simple two-line letter saying, this person no longer has capacity to handle their finances. <laughs> yeah, those letters from the doctors are usually literally one sentence or two sentences. Well, they're drafted by lawyers in most cases. Yeah. And the, and the lawyer and the doctor sign. Again, the, I agree with you. The doctor's not trying to hurt anybody. The doctor sees people that look like they want to help this person, and so they're signing off on it. So I guess if, to really get to the heart of the matter as a practice point, I mean, first of all, as a estate planning attorney, you do not have the right to be paternalistic with your client, right? That's I mean, correct. You have to find out what does the client want, and whatever the client wants, that's what you need to do. That's right. And number two, the other thing that troubles me about this particular case is it sounds as though this lawyer was more interested in keeping a client on retainer because if the original client, the dad, lost capacity, then the daughter probably need to go out and get a different attorney. That's right. Which means the attorney who who had drafted the plan would lose out on right. the dollar bills right. of billing that client. That's right. I would say that this case, I probably wouldn't have taken it on the way we did if one fact had been, and that if the lawyer had gone and visited with his client first and saw that he was completely, I mean, he was just drooling, there was no mental functioning, okay, maybe he's the long-standing estate planning attorney, who better to stand in and do these things? But under the law, that's a conflict of interest, and it has to be analyzed to make sure that you're not violating your duties to your longstanding client so that you can keep another retainer from a trustee keeping the, keeping the case going forward. And I'm not, I don't mean to make this sound so facetious. There's nothing wrong with good lawyers working on cases, but this one, there wasn't even a phone call. The, the lawyer hadn't followed up with his client in more than a year or two, something along those lines, and just simply had no idea if what the daughter was reporting to him was true or not. All he knew was that this daughter was going to be now taking over the trust moving forward. Yeah, it comes back to who's the client. So if the dad's the client, you have to do right by dad. And so did this attorney do right by dad? Right. And that's what it ultimately comes down to, and it sounds like he didn't. Right. And that's unfortunate because it's not that hard. It's not that hard to do the right thing, pick up the phone, drive out to the client's house, whatever it is that you have to do, and right. find out for yourself. That's right. So that's, that's an interesting case, and uh, it's unfortunate, too. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's move on to our asked and answered segment. So we actually have asked, been asked many, many questions over the years that have to do with attorney malpractice. 
but we have some recently that the lovely Miss Kayla will read out for us. Oh, there's Kayla. Paralegal. Hi, Kayla. Say hello. Hi. She just did like a backflip into the scene. You see that? <laughs> She's acrobatic. So our first question today is, can a lawyer draft an estate plan without knowing whether my mom, dad, or loved one has mental capacity to make good decisions? So we touched on this a little bit earlier. That's something that you had mentioned too. And um, the interesting thing about the issue, are you trying to get out of the scene, Kayla? You just have to, on the third line, there you go. Watch, she's gonna do a backflip back out. There she goes. So the interesting issue about drafting attorneys, so an estate planning attorney, when they're asked by anybody to do a trust or a will, they have to make a reasonable inquiry into whether or not the person has capacity and is operating without undue influence. But when we say reasonable inquiry, it's not an exhaustive inquiry. It's not a medical inquiry. Lawyers are not doctors. Um, they don't really know the ins and outs, most of us don't really know the ins and outs of a medical diagnosis for lack of capacity. That's something that is good. For, that's why we have uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and neuro, neuropsych people. Neurologists, right? Neurologists. Is all, you know, they study the brain, not us. So would you, so if, if somebody comes in, the attorney certainly has a duty to be reasonably assured that the person has capacity, but they don't have to guarantee it and they don't have to back it up. And so would you, as an estate planning attorney, and we used to do estate planning years ago before we got so heavy into our litigation practice, but would you send a client out to have a neuropsych evaluation if they came into your office and wanted to do an estate plan? Not under, uh, generally the answer, no, I would not do that. But if I myself, based on my experience in life, thought there was questions about this person, and then there was another red flag with uh, family members bringing this person in, a person looks confused to me, I would either decline to do the estate plan, or if I did feel that maybe this could be looked into further, I might suggest, hey, if you'll go get a, a neurologic exam on this person and get a nice detailed report, I'd be happy to do their estate plan. So really it comes back to the red flags then. Yes. I mean, so if somebody comes in, they just want to leave, they want to create a trust that leaves everything to their kids equally, and that's what's going to happen under the intestate rules anyway, Right. and you're not quite sure if they can have capacity or not, would you do that estate plan? Probably. Again, if I felt the person didn't have any capacity whatsoever, then I would, I would probably suggest we at least get one of those letters from a doctor that yeah, our right. attorney drafted. The, the funny thing about this is I remember one time we went to a, a, a trust and will signing when we were doing estate planning years ago. And I, I think if you remember, the, the, the lady was in, in really bad shape. She was in a, a skilled nursing facility and yeah. having problems breathing. And I wasn't sure I wanted this thing signed. And we cut the signing off when her son grabbed uh, her hand. The son grabbed her hand and started signing the documents for her. Yeah, and at that, that point, it's like, okay, stop, time out. This isn't going to work. Yeah, we took the documents back and shredded them. So it's like she clearly did not. She looked awake at the beginning, but halfway through signing, it was like uh, out. Right. I mean, I think that definitely is a problem. Now, that in that case, he was her only child. The trust was going to leave everything to him anyway. I mean, it's kind of like no harm, no foul when you're not changing anything. I think the problem comes into play when either one sibling's bringing the parent in, and lo and behold, the parent's saying, I want to leave everything to the person who just drove me into the office, right. or worse yet, a caregiver. And I've had that happen to me before, too, where 
uh, a caregiver in particular uh, contacted me and with a client I had already done an estate plan and then the client started to go downhill and then I got a call from the caregiver saying oh he wants to leave me his house right and it's like I'm not no I'm not I, gonna I, touch I, it I, I'm not gonna do that change I don't think it's appropriate I told her that in, in any event you're a prohibited transferee under the statute but I would never do that amendment because it just sounds very self-serving and I can't be assured of that but it's shocking, I think, to a lot of people that attorneys don't have to get a medical evaluation. That's right, and that, and that answers the question here. Uh, the one thing I would say is, is that, uh, well, why don't we move on to our next question? I think we've, we've, we've tackled this one enough. All right, Kayla. Okay, so the next question is, does a lawyer have to take measures to ensure that an estate plan is not influenced by coercion, manipulation, or a failing mind? So I'll just, I'll tackle this one and say it's very similar to the last one. And that is, this is more the undue influence or somebody else exercising some type of, per, of excessive persuasion over somebody to change their estate plan. This is, again, the red flags analysis. You're the lawyer. You don't have a duty to, like, go and visit the house and inspect how many people have been coming and going. And you're, you're not a private investigator trying to figure out why you shouldn't do this estate plan. But if you're seeing one person bring... Uh, somebody that's fairly frail into your office and this person is answering all the questions and, and saying, oh, mom and dad, that's not what you wanted. Remember at home you said this, this, and this. That's where you want to take a time out and say, listen, I need you. Well, first of all, that person shouldn't be in the room in any event. But if they are, you need to get them out of the room and you need to talk to the client and see what's going on. But uh, if, you, if I were to see something like that, I probably would decline to do the estate plan. And this is what I was just about to say in the last uh, question, and that is, it's amazing to me how many lawyers out there will take $1,500 to do an amendment that hey. will transfer millions and millions yeah. of dollars away from two really good kids and give it all to one really bad kid. Well, I was, gonna, I was just going to say that. I go, num number one, we see this most often with attorneys who don't practice in estate planning. So it tends to be the attorneys who do completely unrelated things who make these amendments when they shouldn't, when there's clear red flags. And number two, it always seems to be for a very low price. And it seems like the worse the amendment is, the cheaper they charge for it, which is kind of uh, backwards, you would think, because if you're going to transfer millions of dollars in a situation where there's tons of red flags that this person is being unduly influenced, why would you only charge 800 to to $1,000 for that? We like charge $50,000. You're doing something wrong. We have a, might as well charge for it. We have a case going on right now where there was $10 million, roughly $10 million transferred in a 20-minute amendment. It took the lawyer 20 minutes to draft the amendment. And you know how much the lawyer charged for it? $500. I mean, wow. And $10 million was transferred. And they ignored all the red flags, I'm sure. Because, they did. And we'll see plenty of cases where there's tons of red flags, and you'll see the longtime estate planning attorney will turn it down and say, no, I'm not going to do that amendment. There's too many red flags here. By the way, we it. those are the perfect cases that we take. When we find out that there's a long... Uh, term attorney that declines to make an amendment and then somebody goes and shops around for one of these lower end attorneys to do a $500 amendment, we love to get the file from the previous attorney because that attorney is a good solid citizen and chances are they've documented their file saying, I don't believe this person had capacity or I believe there was an exercise of undue influence taking place over my client. Well, and eventually, it seems like eventually you can find somebody to draft one of these amendments. Yes. It's just it, they're out there somewhere. But it tends to be people who don't know trust and wills that well because they don't understand the red flags and so they'll just do, you know, what they're told. Right. And it's unfortunate. 
So do you have any other uh, questions for us, Kayla? We do. Two more questions. So the next question is, can I sue an attorney for drafting a bad estate plan? And if so, what proof do I need? Well, we talked a little bit about this in the first segment too, but the best estate planning question, the, the, you can sue an attorney for drafting an estate plan improperly if they made a mistake in the drafting that caused you to lose your inheritance. But then the question becomes how good of a case is it? So when you ask what kind of proof do you need, it comes down to, well, what kind of, what kind of mess up was it, right? What, where was the harm or the error by the attorney? And so if the error was the one that you described where it took two signatures and they only got one, what kind of proof did you need in that case? The documents. And that was about it. Yeah. I mean, it was, the proof was very little because it was just so clear cut. But normally you're going to need a little bit more proof than that. Yes. Would you agree with that? I agree. Which means you probably are going to need the testimony of friends or witnesses or somebody who knew what this intent was. because. Let's say that somebody was mistakenly left out of a trust, so they were disinherited, but it wasn't the intent of the testator to disinherit them. So I have four kids, and uh, I get a trust done, and I say, I want to leave it equally to my kids, and the attorney writes down three of the kids, not realizing that they left out a fourth, and they specifically gave everything to those three kids. How, what what kind of a case would that be, you think, from mal malpractice? A few years ago, it would be a real problem, and there would be a lot of liability that that malpractice attorney would be facing. But now, the California Supreme Court, and I don't remember the name of the case, they have opined and said that we're going to allow extrinsic evidence, which is simply outside evidence, to come in to cure a mistake. And before, we didn't, and the mistake had to be apparent on the face of the document. Intent is usually not apparent on the face of the document because, and I'll give you the example I thought you were going to say is where a, a man has two children from a previous marriage from years back. Yeah. He gets remarried years later to a very young lady and he's in his 60s and he has four kids with the very young lady. Yeah. And he intends to give all of his assets to his four children that he's had with the most recent wife. And he, he has that through all of his amendments. Yeah. And the final amendment, the lawyer somehow leaves out my four children with my current wife and just simply puts, give this equally to all of my children. Well, he's got six children. And so the question is, did he intend to give it to the six or the four? That's not apparent from the face of the document because the right. document says all children. So how do you resolve that? Well, you bring up an interesting point. So the first question is, can you fix the trust? And so can you figure out what his intent truly was? And does the court have the right and the power to correct that mistake? So you're saying that the court, and I agree, the court came out not that long ago and said you can use extrinsic evidence to fix mistakes. Right. So if you get the, you know, the testimony of the drafting attorney and whoever else would have information about this and they say, it was supposed to go you know, to my four kids or it was supposed to go to the six kids, then you can use that testimony to correct the mistake. But if you correct the mistake, let's say the court agrees with you and corrects that mistake, does that take away the attorney malpractice? Not necessarily, although it makes it a harder case to win. It, it could, right? Yeah. So like in my example where I, there's four kids, but they only named three. Right. Let's say you go into court and the court says, yes, that was a mistake and I'm going to correct it right. under my powers, my equitable power to make correct mistakes. Right. So now it's going to go four ways to all four kids. Right. Is that attorney off the hook for malpractice? More than likely, yes. Because there's now not 
other than the da the cost it took maybe to the cost i mean you could arguably one of the three that was getting could say no 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 it was really three it should have been three yeah. but chances are that's not going to win especially if a court reforms the trust so so it's probably going to let the attorney off the hook for malpractice so there's a difference between um part of the problem with these malpractice cases is you have to see how the underlying lawsuit pans out correct because if that underlying lawsuit is fixed, then maybe the malpractice goes away. That's right. Those. That's right. We have one more question. Here, last question is, what steps should I take if I want to challenge a trust or a will? Okay, so this has to do with a typical trust contest or will contest. And so what generally happens here, Keith, is that uh, you're, you're going along in life and you're a lawyer and you're, you're providing for your family and uh, your sister lives at home with your mom who uh, your dad's passed away and everything he owned he gave to your mom and uh, so one day your mom passes away it's a very sad time for your family you and your sister get together you plan a funeral she may be a little controlling in that um, she may not answer all the questions you have you might start thinking something just doesn't feel right here but because it's a funeral you go to the funeral you give the speeches you get back to going to work a couple weeks pass and you think you know I'm gonna call my sister and I'm gonna ask her you know, where's, where's mom's will or where's mom's trust? And she doesn't want to give it to you. And, you know, you have to go hire a lawyer because you, you're a lawyer that doesn't practice in this area. That lawyer finally secures a copy of the trust. And, and your mom made this trust in 2005 and it split her entire estate between you and your sister equally. And lo and behold, a month before she died, she does an amendment for $500 to a drafting attorney right. and everything goes to your sister. So what are you to do when, what are your rights? Can should you just give up and say, well, I've, I've lost my inheritance or what can you do? Well, you definitely should at least seek the advice of somebody who knows trust and will litigation. And you know, that's all we do. And you should find out if there's grounds to challenge that amendment. You can't overturn an amendment just because. And so I think a lot of people think, well, I'm a child and I should get something from my parent. Well, in, in the United States, and certainly in California, children do not have an automatic right to inherit from their parents. Parents can disinherit you all day long, and that's just the way it is. But the question comes down to, was it a proper amendment? So did mom have capacity? Was she unduly influenced? Was she uh, the victim of fraud? You know, was she lied to? So you get some of these cases where you know, maybe my sister went in and said, well, just leave everything to me and I'll make sure that, you know, Keith gets his share or something like that. Right. Which, uh, by the way, my sister would never do that. But, but everybody, you know, we run into this problem continually. I mean, this is why we have the firm that we have is because people are always have these problems. And it's very confusing because people don't know what to do after mom died and they don't know what their rights are and they don't know whether or not they can challenge this. And then you get that piece of paper in the mail that says you have 120 days. If you get a trustee notification, it says you have 120 days to challenge the trust. That's under California law. Under California law. So that's, you're talking four months that you have to decide. I mean, think about that. Your parents just died. You just found out you're disinherited. And you've got four months to decide if you're going to file a lawsuit or not. And if you don't, you'll never be able to file a lawsuit ever again. There's a lot of pain going on, heaviness at that time, a lot of stress, and you have a lot to think about. So, I mean, I think the first step for sure is to get good advice from a competent attorney who knows what they're doing in this area. Find out what your potential rights are. And if you, if in the case of a total disinheritance, it's a little bit of an easier decision because you can just go ahead and file a lawsuit. 
I'm not going to lose anything really other than the cost of paying the attorney unless I'm hiring the attorney on contingency. I can at least file and see what's out there and then we can figure out what the evidence is. And we are going to have to do discovery, get the medical records, probably do depositions, get some written discovery, just what's, what's out there. And the one thing I always tell beneficiaries when they call into us and they're in the situation you just described is right now you're in the dark. You don't have any information that you need to evaluate this case. You don't have the finances usually. You don't have the medical records. All of this was done behind your back naturally because it was a sneaky thing to do. And so you're in the dark, but you're not alone. Every beneficiary in your position is in the exact same position, which is they're in the dark. They don't know anything. Right. So it's a two-step process. Step number one, you got to get informed. And then once you get the information, step two is now we can make some decisions about how to proceed on your case. Unfortunately, you can't get informed without filing a lawsuit because it's when you file a lawsuit that you get the subpoena power and you get deposition power and we get all these great powers to go out and force people to give us that information. But right. how do you get medical records prior to filing a lawsuit? You don't. You really don't. A lot of times people say, well, can I go to the medical provider? and get my mom's medical records? Usually, no. We, we say no, and they go, oh, well, here I went, and they gave me these medical every records. You're like, how did you get those? Yeah, every now and again, somebody <laughs> will go, and the medical provider will give them. But yeah. probably 90% of the time, they won't, right. especially with all the new HIPAA laws. Right. And so that means that you have to file a lawsuit and issue the subpoena. So the steps really are to get some competent advice. Everybody has to make their own decision about whether they're going to sue or not. But once you make that decision, then, uh, and if you're, the decision is to sue, then you got to get to work. You got to file your lawsuit as quickly as possible because you're under a deadline in most cases. And then try to go out and find the evidence that you need as quickly as possible. And That's by right. quickly, of course, in the law, we're talking a matter of months. Right. I mean, to get properly informed, it's probably going to take you six to 10 months of work. That's right. Because that's how the law works. But, but that's fast in our area. That's right. lightning fast. Right. So. Is that all the questions that we have, Kayla? Fantastic. Well, we want to thank you so much for joining us on the Stand, Fight, Win podcast. We'll be here next week when we go over another topic of trust and well interest. Thank you, Stuart. You're welcome. We'll see you next week. All right.